The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our scripture text for this morning's message is Genesis 19, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 29. Genesis 19, starting with verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, And he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than than with them. Then he pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. 
but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was Zor. The sun had had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrown when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. It is good to be together with you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It is good to be together to worship and celebrate and commit ourselves again to the front lines work with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord God, it is indeed good to have come together to sing to you by your Spirit. Now, by word and Spirit, we would be confronted by you and that our path would be determined by your word and Spirit in joy and that we would be prepared all the more to be joyfully, boldly, wisely, righteously, on the front lines with our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might delight in you more and that our neighbors and family and friends and each other in the church would see, know, delight in, surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us by your Spirit as we look at your Word and prepare us now for that act of commitment to the front lines, looking back and looking forward when we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of this preparation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What an awful story. And we didn't get to the worst part. Hard stop, verse 29. Kids, what you have just heard read would be PG-13 if it was a movie. The last part of the chapter would be pushing an R-rated. So we got to ask, why would God put this in his Bible? Bottom line, kids, if this is a movie, probably adults too, you shouldn't watch it. But ugly as it is, this is not 
a movie. And it is not for your entertainment. These are words from God to show us how to live in awful situations. All the world is not awful all the time. Uh, That's not the point. But we do live in a sinful and messy world. And God would teach us how to stand with him. It is awful sometimes. And in fact, in this messy world, God is declaring the gospel through us all if we will join him. Today, we are here in the Twin Cities, which reflect Sodom and Gomorrah, only worse. So I want kids and everyone here to understand two things right up front. First, God knows there are people in your life, in the past or now or the future, who act in bad ways. Each of us needs to understand that the people who act in this way are sick with sin. And God is very angry at them. Not with you who have to live through it. And second, you are never alone. God knows you live in a sinful and messy world. And he is eager to care for you, both by his special protection and by his teaching. Now, in order to understand how we're to live in difficult times, we should look at the responses of a few people and groups in the story in order to learn how is it that he expects us to live. Christians, let me tell you how to listen. You know the gospel, and you love it. The question is, how does the gospel actually touch the road, touch your heart, touch your hands, touch your head? How does it give you the means to follow God in a wicked world? This story can teach us how to live out the gospel and how not to. Not yet Christians. I assume that some of you here or some of you in the live stream are not yet surrendered to God. I wonder if you're worn out by some of us Christians who seem to be always moralizing about the world. Uh, Yes, some of us Christians are so condemning, despising those who don't agree with us. God forgive us and I would ask that you do too. But listen, on the other hand, I am eager. This text is eager. God is eager to help you see why Christians oppose evil in ourselves, but also in others, and so help you want the God that the Spirit and the Word are pointing to because we want you to find hope. So let's begin. Three ideas. First, lot. Are we righteous but unwise in the Twin Cities? As we begin Genesis 19, I hope you understand we're in the middle of a story. I trust you've heard the sermons or at least read the texts in Genesis 18. 
God promises an heir to Abraham and Sarah, and then in a dark turn, God announces the death of the twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of the gravity of their sin, interestingly, the word used to describe the kinds of sin they're involved in is the word heavy. The simple translation in English, heavy. Now, Moses, who's writing this, has already used the word heavy in exactly the opposite context. The weight, the heaviness of God's glory. He's contrasting here the heaviness of the ugliness of sin and the heaviness of the glory of God. So we come now to chapter 19. The perspective shifts from Abraham to Lot. And in the context of Abraham's prayer, clearly this is because Lot, the focus of this story, was a righteous man in the Twin Cities. There were not ten righteous men. There was only one. And so, because of that, death is coming to the Twin Cities. But God, God would save this one. But through or though righteous, and though he is saved, I got to tell you, Lot is not the wisest man alive. When we meet Lot in Genesis 19, how did we get here? How do we find ourselves in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah with this righteous man? The answer is Lot's selfishness and Lot's misdirected imagination. Genesis 2, remember that, many weeks back, tells us that Eden was a well-watered garden by a river that branched into four rivers. This is characteristic of temple. A river runs from it. Years before, Abraham and Lot had left Ur, watered by the Tigris and the Euphrates, two of the above-mentioned rivers, and they came to this land. One day, Abraham and Lot viewed the land from between Bethel and Ai, and as they looked, Abraham gave Lot a choice. Choose. Lot looked out. He looked down to the south. He saw it was lush and beautiful and watered by the Jordan. It seems to me that the Jordan reminded Lot of one of those four above-named rivers that flowed out of Eden. And Lot took this for himself. He was righteous, but he was selfish. And he was foolish. For the people of the Twin Cities, even in the day he chose it because it looked good, were already wicked. It says in chapter 13 of Genesis, the men of Sodom were wicked at that time, great sinners against Yahweh. And Lot and his family lived in the midst of that wickedness. And it seeped into their souls. They hated wickedness. Lot did. 
It grieved his soul. And yet, he made a kind of peace with it. Lot seems to have become a leader in a city. When the angelic visitors arrive, he sat in the gates of the city, a privilege and responsibility of leadership. He was only one of the leaders. And yet, as we come to this story, did you notice he's the only one to offer hospitality? That should shock us. In verse 3, when the visitors turned down the offer of hospitality, it says he pressed them strongly. We should hear it in our English vernacular. Probably something like this. He twisted their arms. He knew, Lot knew, exactly what awaited them if they did not accept hospitality. If they stayed in the town square. We are right to approve of this godly man, but we already are hearing something is not quite right with Lot. We see his righteousness again. We see even boldness when things go badly. It says all the men of Sodom, every one, not one missing, showed up at Lot's home where the visitors were staying with incredibly evil intentions. They wanted to know the two men, the two angels. Lest you imagine, in hope, that this could mean nothing worse than an interrogation of the visitors, not so. The second story in Genesis 19 uses that same word, no, for sexual relations that resulted in the birth, not of one, but of even two children. So here, the men of the town come with the intention of committing sodomy. But righteous Lot stood in their way. He did so boldly. He went outside to confront them, and in honor, he closed the door to protect the visitors and put himself in harm's way. He intended the safety of his visitors from his own friends at his own risk. And then he chastised the mob for their wickedness, speaking for God. Well done, Lot. Yet immediately, Lot's righteousness is contrasted with his lack of wisdom. Lot resonated with the sin-distortion field of Sodom. It had fabulized his own thinking. He offered them his own daughters. How could a righteous man be so wrong? Then, miraculously, the angels, they are now clearly angels, saved Lot. They jerked him inside. They closed the door behind him and they blinded the mob. And then that evening, these angels sent Lot out to preach to his future sons-in-law. Flee the city. God is about to judge and destroy it. Lot obeyed. But these young men 
thought he was making a joke. Did you catch that when the text was read? And did you also catch the author's deep intention to make a connection back to Abraham and to Sarah? Their response to God's good news about a son to be born brought laughter. And then they named this young baby born when God said he would be laughter, Isaac. So here joking. But beyond the story's connection with Abraham and Sarah, we should wonder, why did they laugh? Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promise because it defied logic and it confused their desires because deeply this is what they wanted. But what of the sons-in-law? Did it mean that they disagreed? Sure. Were they mocking Lot? Perhaps. But why? Why did they think Lot was joking? I mean, consider, they had been there at the house when the mob arrived. They had seen Lot take a stand for God. They themselves had seen Lot offer their fiancés to be terribly treated and murdered. So why laugh? Why be surprised at God's judgment? I think they were quite surprised at Lot's position. It seems that Lot's perspective on sin, he had kept to himself till now. This was a new Lot who didn't fit the old Lot that they knew. Lot continues to act strangely, foolishly. He has just witnessed the life-threatening mob. He has preached God's wrath and the imminent danger of destruction, death to the Twin Cities. But when it's time to flee, he's sleeping. Sitting in his easy chair. Lingering. The angels did not merely have to wake him from sleep, a metaphor in itself. But it seems that even after splashing water on his face and brushing his teeth, he lingered. There's something broken in Lot. Now, perhaps, you have begun to doubt my assertion that Lot was a righteous man. But he was. We read in 2 Peter chapter 2. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. And he saw and heard. Then the Lord God knows how to rescue the righteous from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Lot is called righteous by God. 
So, we say with God that, right, that Lot was indeed a righteous man, but he was not a wise man. Selfish. He chose the best for himself, ignoring his uncle. Foolish. The Sodom and Gomorrah he chose looked pretty, but was wicked then. Confused. He offered his daughters for the sake of hospitality. Failed leadership. In the next text, 30 to 38, Lot let his daughters get him drunk twice and let them mislead him into sin. If we must live, and it seems we must, in a wretched world, heavy with sin, it is absolutely essential to be righteous. But that's not enough. We must also be wise so that not only will we be saved, but so we can be a help to others all around us who are in danger imminently of God's wrath. Your goal is not merely to save yourself. Are we doing that? Weekly I pray for, as you do, my family and my friends and men I disciple. And I pray particularly on Fridays for the gift of living in God's reality rather than the sin distortion field of the world we live in. To thrive in an evil world like Jesus did. You see, sin is itself a deception and Satan a deceiver. It was God himself who taught us to pray Lead us not into temptation. And we're talking to God. Lead us not into temptation. God, deliver us from the evil one who, if I may paraphrase, would confuse us. Satan intends to do just that. But God is not a God of confusion. So we pray for and seek his reality that we may live in it in wisdom. God's word is a light to our path. And so when we follow the path of God's word, we are an indirect light to everyone around us, our children, our family, our neighbors, the people we work with, to see God. When we see clearly with God's wisdom, rather than the foolishness of our sin-heavy world, we can be used to help others stay alive until by God's Spirit they are regenerated and can cry out and surrender to God in this way. Wisdom is gospel strategy to save the world from sin. Second, Lot's wife. Are we entangled in what is under judgment in the Twin Cities? Consider Lot's wife because she encourages you and I to ask have we become more influenced by the sin distortion field of this world than we're willing to acknowledge? Let's think about names again. Pastor Dave told us names are always important everywhere in Scripture, Genesis in particular. But she didn't have one. In fact, to the best of my limited knowledge, she is the first person in all the Bible so far that has any key role in the story who doesn't get a name. 
checked me this afternoon. I mean, think about it. Lamech, the first human to intentionally misread the Bible to advocate for his own distortion on what the world should be like under sin, is named. Even Cain's descendants are explicitly named. Nimrod, too, has a name. You remember him. He's the one that started the Babel Project. But not this woman. Lot's wife, no name. Who is she then? Well, we know very little about her life. This unnamed woman only did one thing that's recorded. She looked back. I remember this picture of her looking back from childhood. We had something called flannel graph. It's a low-tech video projector. (laughs) I remember this picture more than any other. It was so intense and so terrifying. There are two things that I want us to consider about this backward glance. First, please note she made it to safety. The flannel graph that I looked at had her out in the middle of a field looking back at what appeared to be a nuclear explosion. But in Genesis 19.13, Lot and his whole family made it safely to exactly where God told them they may go. Remember, Lot argued with God, send me to the mountain, not to the mountains, but to the city. God allowed him to flee to Zoar rather than the mountains, or I will die. This should sound vaguely familiar. For some of the words reflect the very wording of Abraham, who in Genesis 18 interceded for the twin cities. Abraham disputed with God for the salvation of the twin cities, so Lot, so Lot, disputed with God for his own safety. Remember, he's a selfish man. Lot did not fully trust God. But together, they all made it safely to Zoar. Then came the destruction. Second, second, from this place of safety, after God's messenger had said out loud, do not look back. Why did she? I will tell you, she longed for what she was leaving there more than she desired God who had let her hear. You might say, Rick, that's speculation. Genesis doesn't tell us that. Okay, I cheated. I read the end of the story. Because if you go to Luke chapter 17, here's what it says. On that day, the day of God's wrath, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. The longing for what is not like God is the opposite of faith. The reverse, true faithfulness, is displayed and illustrated in Hebrews 11. Here the author lists 
person after person who hoped for what she or he longed in their heart but did not yet see. They were not satisfied by the place they were in. They longed for a new country not yet seen. And God defined faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. This is the opposite of looking back. To see what is being lost by following God. We are called to look forward to future grace. Do we look back? When the unnamed looked back, she longed for a world that was passing away. And that caused her to look back. And notice in her absence, she terribly damaged her family. Have you ever thought not just what looking back does to you, but what it does to the people around you? Won't have time today, that's my excuse, to go into the rest of this tragic story. But let me notice that the grotesque sins of the daughters in 1930 through 38 could not have happened if Lot's unnamed wife had obeyed and lived. She would have stood between Lot and the daughters, confused panic and resulting, should we call it incest? But that's not even a full description. It was really this. It was a contest between fear and faith, and fear prevailed. What about us? What about Rick? Do I, do we look back? Do we feel a sense of loss at following God? If so, we're not living by faith. Indeed, our sins, our lack of desiring God is at the center, and more than the things that we must give up to pursue and when we do that, yes, God is grieved. When we do that, yes, that's a sin. When we do that, yes, we should repent. But when you do that, you take yourself out of the situation to stand for others, just like Lot's wife. Will we eagerly obey God in an evil day? Lastly, thirdly, Abraham. Are we interceding for God's people in the Twin Cities? I promised you the gospel, and here it is. Abraham interceding for the salvation of an evil world for the sake of righteousness. It started in Genesis 18, and look, it's displayed here again. I want to read this part of the text, verses 27 to 29. Hear this. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had, just before, stood before Yahweh. He looked down again toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. He looked, and behold, the smoke of the land rose up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot in the midst of the overthrow. When he overthrew the cities which Lot had lived. Now, here's something interesting. Unlike Lot's family, Abraham was not told, do not look. I mean, realize this is coming. Abraham's looking at the city. It is right after the unnamed 
was turned into a pillar of salt because she looked. Wait a minute. How is it the case that she looked and got judged? Abraham looks and it's worship. It's an example of the difference between the thing done and the motivation. It's an example of the difference that God will say to one person, go here and to another, go there. For Lot and his family, the point was do not look back longingly. For Abraham, looking meant beholding the weighty glory of God's work and judgment. And so what was prohibited for Lot was not only permitted, but worship for Abraham. And this, Abraham's intercession, is the gospel in a picture. As Abraham prayed, the story makes it clear that this is the second time that Abraham saved Lot. Uh, The first was Genesis 14, his physical salvation in the war of the four kings. The second was here, his physical salvation from God's judgment on the Twin Cities. Yes, I know, it was only physical salvation rather than spiritual salvation. Surely, physical salvation is not the gospel, or is it? First, we do see the gospel in the battle with the four kings. For Abraham offered his life to redeem his family from the enemy. This has a gospel ring to it, does it not? But still, that wasn't actual spiritual salvation any more than was the offering of his son on Mount Moriah. Uh, I cheated. I read ahead. Chapter 22. But it is also no less than that is. It is, as was Mount Moriah, a metaphor of the hazards the righteous endure for the joy set before them. In such a way did Paul speak of his own life in his letters, and did Christ speak of yours in the following of the gospel. So when we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, we are answering the question that John asked, or that Jesus asked John and James, can you drink the cup that I must drink? We see also a metaphor of salvation when Abraham looks and sees the smoke of God's wrath rising above the Twin Cities. This image is the biblical antecedent for the revelation of John. This image is the smoke of the furnace of the bottomless pit in Revelation 19, and it is the image of the bottomless pit after the destruction of Babylon in chapter 19 of Revelation. Praise Yahweh, for the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. This is the end of those who make war on the Lamb by making immorality their God. And it is just from this metaphorical end that righteous Lot is saved. And it is the picture of an eternity without God and a picture of salvation from that end. Second, we see the gospel in regard to Abraham's prayer. This, too, is most interesting. The reason given for God's grace is not, as you might have expected, 
God remembered Lot. I mean, if you read the story of Noah, God remembered Noah, and Noah was saved. So we expect here, God remembered Lot, and Lot was saved. Not the case. Did you see that? Verse 29, God remembered Abraham, and Lot was saved. What did he remember about Abraham? The intercessor was the victor. And you and I are called to the gospel role of intercessor. This is a rich gospel metaphor throughout the life of Abraham and in the story. We see the analogy of the proclamation of the gospel in the physical rescue of Lot, and we see intercession for the gospel and for the lost in Abraham before the throne of God. We must boldly proclaim God's gospel of Christ to the whole world, and we must pray and intercede for that world. And to all here today, this is God's offer to you now. So, to wrap things up, how do we live in a wicked world? As kings, we are to live out the gospel eagerly and without lingering. We obey God. That is leadership. Second, as prophets, we do not look back. We despise and surrender all things that drag us back from seeking and following God, and we delight in and declare the glory of God's heaviness. And third, as priests, we pray for the righteous and the lost. May the righteous be sustained in grace, and may the lost accept God's offer to rescue them from Satan's kingdom of darkness. If we live in this way, in a wicked world, it may in fact credit our proclamation. But the world is not like this. Back to Lot, just for a moment. When he spoke for God to his not-to-be-future sons-in-law, they thought he was joking. They lost their lives. So also the people in the riot who tried to kill Lot lost their lives. They accused him of the absolute worst crime that could be imagined. Judgmentalism. In fact, it may be the only sin left in the Twin Cities. Transculturally, this is true even today. When they said this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge, now we will deal with you worse than with them, the visitors. The idea of judging, even transculturally, has two distinct meanings. The first way is to judge by despising a person because of someone's situation, beliefs, or actions. I judge that you are Republican, therefore I despise you. I judge that you are in error, and I'm right, therefore I despise you. I judge that you are not like me, so I despise you. Such judging, despising another, is condemned by God. But a second way to judge is to discern. I discern that you are in pain. Can I help you? I discern that you are drowning. Will you let me rescue you? Such judging, discerning the situation, is commanded by God. 
Roe v. Wade is now history. And the Christian world celebrates. So we should. Yet we will be despised for celebrating. Why? Because there's no common ground. After all, if God is not commonly honored and feared for his weighty glory, then all is opinion. And so all discerning is despising. Unless there's truly a God who defines what is good. If so, then opposing abortion, even telling a woman what to do in that regard, we are discerning. Some will laugh. Others will try to kill you. Are you a not yet Christian here today? What do you think about all this that you're seeing? Are you frustrated by moralizing Christians? Sometimes we do that. I've done that. Sometimes against God's word, I have despised someone who are not like me or despise you for making up your own rules. You're right, then, to accuse me and us. In fact, Jesus accused the Pharisees of just that. But some Christians, please hear this, if you're not yet Christian, for example, those who oppose abortion, are discerning God's word and God's heart and warning you. Our desire for you is not to merely change your mind on abortion. Our desire for you is to find hope that is in God when you surrender to him and turn away from wickedness in Christ. In a wicked world, in the Twin Cities, we are to both be righteous and wise. And in that, we are to offer hope. The effort will not be well received by most, but it is always a pleasing offering to God, and he is the only one whose favor we are trying to gain. Father, I pray that today we have not looked at the wicked world just to become afraid. I pray that you have marshaled us by seeing our Savior and our Lord and our delight, Jesus Christ, to follow him as our hero to the front lines, to stand with him by your spirit and by your word, not so we can prove the world wrong, but in humility to call the world to the hope that's in surrender to the only one. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.